order for one generation to teach the next generation, we have to serve as good role models. And I think it's very important that philanthropy be taught by parents and teachers. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Jean Shaparoff, philanthropist, TV host, and author of the book, Successful Philanthropy, How to Make a Life by What You Give. Welcome to Sylvia and Me. Jean, thank you so much for that introduction. And you are uh, a philanthropist, uh, to say the least. In fact, you have been called the first lady of philanthropy. And I want to get into how did you, what influenced you? Because you have been doing this for quite some time. You're on the board of several foundations, several charities. You're a human rights advocate. You're an animal rights advocate. So how did this begin? What influenced you? Well, Sylvia, I think my upbringing and for the, those listening, I attended 12 years of Catholic school where the nuns taught us the importance of giving back. But I will add that all religions teach the importance of giving back. And then my father was a school teacher. He was a music teacher who had studied at Juilliard and Columbia. And his students were very important to him. So he would come back from a day of work after teaching his students and talk about how important they were to us, to his family. And so I had very good role models. That was the beginning. I started, my first career was as a physical therapist. I had uh, graduated from, as an undergraduate, the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University with a degree, a BS in physical therapy. And I started working at the inner city hospital, St. Luke's in New York City. And there I saw so much human suffering. People were living at or below the poverty level and they also had all sorts of physical problems, health problems. And that also had its effect on me. Well, I didn't stay too long as a physical therapist. I decided to get more education so that I could do something a little different. I thought I wanted to work in hospital administration. I went back to Columbia to the Graduate School of Business and got an MBA. And then I actually started working on Wall Street with a major in finance. I was working in public finance, the uh, public sector of the banking end of the business. And so that was the beginning. And then uh, after that, I working on Wall Street for a few years. I got married. I decided to stop working when I became pregnant with my first daughter because my husband and I had very long hours. Nobody would ever be home with my uh, daughter that was to be born. And so I, I was a stay-at-home mom, but I got involved with the schools. I got involved with a charity um, serving on the board. And from there, that was the beginning. And as I got more and more involved, I liked it more and more. Now, for the listeners, I just want to say one thing. And that is, as someone who's involved right now on seven charity boards, you do what you can when you can. For example, if you have very young children at home and you really don't have 
a lot of time. Well, no one expects you to volunteer day and night. They don't expect you to go on many, many charity boards. Maybe you have one hour a week, maybe one hour a month, but you do what you can. And then regarding giving money, same thing. You give what you can. Well, that's uh, not to interrupt you, but that's the thing. A lot of people feel that, um, well, I can't commit to daily this or weekly this. When am I going to find the time? Um, I don't have the money. I don't. And to what you just said, it's not a question of how much you have, but where can you fit it into your life? And what are you willing to do that you that won't destroy what you, you know, what is your goal? If you have a family, how do you fit it in there? Um, because if you really want to advocate and you want to do something, you do have to do a little bit of a balancing act and not feel badly that you think that your little one hour a week uh, doesn't compare to somebody else doing 40 hours a week. And so Sophia, you are absolutely right. And I just want to say, I wrote a book, Successful Philanthropy, How to Make a Life by What You Give. And what I say in that book is that anyone can be a philanthropist. You give your time, your knowledge, and available resources. And if your time is only a few hours a month, well, that's enough. And if you don't have, can't write a big check, you write a small check and you can become a philanthropist. And for the listeners, absolutely everyone has something to offer. So many people think they don't have anything. Well, what can I possibly offer to society? Well, each and every one of us has something. And so feel good about who you are and get involved because the help is needed and your help is needed. And there's help that's needed just around your community. It doesn't need, or your school or your, you know, whatever religious, um, be it synagogue, church, or wherever, you know, you might have an affiliation, there's always something. Um, so you don't have to start looking at feed the children, save the children, or any of the larger national uh, foundations you could do something right around where you are. So no question. I agree with that completely. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. get involved with your synagogue or your church, or if you're a member of a mosque, get involved and help there or get involved in your children's school or find a charity that's of interest to you, local or national. Now, of course, as you mentioned, and I talk about this in my book, it's easier to get involved generally with a local charity where you might know the players, the people involved, and they have a local office, easiest. And of course you should do something that you enjoy. If you're volunteering your time and you're going to give money, get involved where you feel you're gonna make a difference, where you feel connected, and, and, where, and, and where it's someplace where you can really enjoy yourself too. So you were, um you were pregnant with your daughter and you wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and you were able to do that. You said you got involved with the school. What was really the first um, charity that you 
wholeheartedly went into and realized that this is something that I could make a difference? Yes, well, I wanna say first that my hours were so long. I was coming home from work at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. that one of us had to stop working, my husband <laughs> or I, and we decided that it was going to be me. But uh, the first thing I did with the schools was I became a class mother. And that enabled me to go into the school, to spend a little time with my daughter, see what was going on and be helpful. I got involved with bake sales. I think in the course of my daughter's time in their high school, um, beginning school and then high school, I must have baked 2000 brownies <laughs> with them. And, and then I actually, um, I got involved with a charity called the United uh, Jewish Appeal. And as a Catholic, I got on the board and they put me on a diplomatic outreach uh, committee, which was great because me being um, of a different religion, they thought I would have a lot to add and offer. And so we had our meetings at night. We were predominantly um, people. I was not working, but I had the MBA. There were lawyers um, involved with this charity, just a great group. And I really learned a lot. I enjoyed the group and I felt like I was offering something. Well, that's it. Um, you've just talked about the fact that it wasn't something that you would have thought of to begin with, but you went in and you were you had skills, you were offering something and it's something that, that you wanted to do. Um, so you, uh, You've, you've written this book, you're a TV producer, um, you, you're a philanthropist, you're also been known as you're a socialite, you live in, in Manhattan, you live in the Hamptons, I believe you also sometimes are in, you travel all over the place, you meet a lot of people. Um, how has that helped you being able to have such a reach on so many different um, charity uh, organizations that you are connected to? Yes, well, remember I started off slowly. You have to start off somewhere. And I offered to host different parties uh, for the different charities. And then I was asked to chair big charity galas. And the more you go out and the more you communicate with different people, the wider your reach becomes, meaning the more and more people you know and communicate with. And I've done a lot of fundraising, volunteer fundraising for many different charities. And the travel being in new places, meeting new people has also been very helpful. I'm a people person. I happen to love people. Some people look and they say, well, they look to criticize. I don't like gossip. I look to find the good in people. I always say we're on this earth for a short time. We have to, we have to add something. Otherwise we waste our lifetime. And then I say that those who have resources, well, we all have a responsibility. For example, to be very wealthy and not to give to charity, it makes absolutely no sense. With great gifts comes great responsibility. And that's not my quote. I, that was somewhat famous. Um, but if you look, Martin Luther King and all the great um, uh, 
people who have really made a change in this world, Nelson Mandela, um, all the religious people, so many different people believe in the importance of giving back, as I do and as you do, and as most people in the United States and the world believe in doing. Yes, yes they do. Um, you talked about parties and, and I talked about you traveling and things have changed dramatically a little over a year ago with the pandemic. You are the national spokesperson for Feed the Hungry COVID-19 program, an initiative designed to feed 1 million animals. Um, can you tell how has the pandemic changed how you go about um, raising money for these charities? Well, I, at the time that the lockdown began, was living in New York, New York City, and everything closed. We all know that. We all had to stay home and we were not allowed to do very much. So all the big charity events that I was involved with, everything was canceled or they became virtual. So my life changed dramatically as everyone else's did. And what we did as a family was we moved out to our home in Southampton because my daughters and my husband and I, we could all be together along with our five rescue dogs. So one of my charity boards is the American Humane. And the American Humane is a charity to help with animals, meaning we work to preserve how animals are treated on farms, um, on movie sets, all over the world. And we work with um, helping war veterans, uh, connect them to service dogs. We do a multitude of different things. And American Humane developed a program during the pandemic called Feed the Hungry COVID-19 Program. And what was this program? A program to, to designed to feed 1 million animals across the United States. Animals that were at animal shelters, animal shelters who could no longer feed their animals because they weren't getting the funding. And so I was asked to become the national spokesperson. Well, I looked into the program. I knew the charity. I believed in what they were doing situation going on where not only the shelters, but people who own animals weren't able to feed their animals. And this program is designed to help many, many different groups, animal shelters, people in need of animal food. And I said, I want to do this. So right now, um, we are almost at our goal. I think we've raised about 900,000 of the 1 million we're planning on feeding over 1 million animals across the United States. I just love this. And what this means to many shelters is that they don't have to close their doors. They can remain open. And for individuals who can't afford food for their pets, well, this means that they can continue keeping their pets and they get food when they go to a shelter. Most shelters now have food pantries. And I love this. I started a TV show on local television in East Hampton in New York City uh, called Successful Philanthropy, where I interview philanthropic leaders 
in all over the world. Some are local, and then some are uh, national or international. I've interviewed people like Carrie Kennedy, her organization, Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights. I interviewed Nelson Mandela's grandson, Nandavi Mandela. He was in Africa at the time of the interview. I give them a platform to talk about what they do and then for them to talk about their philanthropy. Exactly. And that's the thing. And that's something that the um, pandemic has. That's it, If there's anything positive and there's not a lot positive that's come out of this is the fact that more people have connected. And now you're giving a voice, a platform to uh, people from all over the world and they're advocating for you know different organizations and foundations. And people are becoming aware of these when they didn't even know they existed. There's one yep. thing I want, I, I want to get back to, and that is we talked a little bit about how um, before the pandemic, uh, you know, you love to travel. Um, I used to love to, and I still do because you're back to doing some of it. Um, you're, you're always seen in some of the most magnificent clothing gowns that are absolutely gorgeous at the Met, but you're doing it, you know, some people go, oh, you know, she's, she's out there. Um, she's just looking to get publicity. But as you once said, Brooke Astor had a publicist. And really what people don't understand is you are bringing, yes, you know, people are noticing these beautiful outfits and ball gowns, but at the same time, you're bringing attention to something you're doing that you believe in. Jean, you mentioned before we started that you're on the board at FIT, the Fashion Institute of, uh, of Technology um, in New York City. Can you tell us how did you get involved and um, why? Yes, well, I'm actually on the board of the Couture Council, which is the, the group that raises money for the museum at FIT. And I got involved for a few reasons. One, I was asked to join the board. Secondly, I am a fashion lover. And third, the museum is connected to an educational institution that is creating careers for oh, thousands and thousands of students every year. And so when people think of fashion, they forget that the fashion industry employs millions and millions of people worldwide. They also forget that a lot of young people start off as starving young people trying to create a career in fashion. And some are successful and others switch into other areas. And so one of the things people forget about is that when there's a charity gala, and it requires that people get all dressed up. Well, when people are all dressed up and say they're going to a big event at Lincoln Center, number one, these tickets usually cost quite a bit of money in the thousands of dollars. Number two, when people are dressed up, they tend to open up their hearts and their wallets. So if there's an auction, people have put on a gown, the men are in tuxedos, they get a nice meal, a glass of wine, and then there's an auction. Everybody's happy and in a good mood, and they see the money's going to a good cause. 
And so they write a big check and they'll buy or, you know, there's a scholarship for students. And if you give 50,000, someone can go to school for a year. And so people open up their hearts and their wallets. And I think it's all great. And the fashion, the fact that people are dressed up, people are dressed up, they tend to do more. Now, that's not the case with all charities. Some charity groups, uh, the people might prefer to wear jeans. They might have been dressed up all day in a suit or something for That's work right. and they want to go and relax and they're just as generous but each group has their own way and there's no right or wrong way but fashion is it feeds millions of people around the world and I will add that the fashion industry has really suffered during this pandemic because when people stayed home well there was no really uh, no need to get a, a big new wardrobe all you needed was pajamas. <laughs> or joggers with pockets. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's important, as I said before, people don't understand how, you know, we perceive so much. Um, and there's so much that we've been perceiving that is wrong, uh, especially with what's going on over the last year and a half, year and a half, year. Well, I don't know what time anymore. It's just... Amazing. So you have two daughters or just one? I do. My youngest daughter has a charity called Global Strays, and she works day and night as the volunteer president, doesn't receive a salary, and she sends money to Latin American countries to help with animal welfare. She sends them to different animal rescue groups. And so she sent quite a bit of money to Nicaragua, where the people are um, live um, very underserved communities and where the average salary per day is a dollar a day. And so that money goes a long way. And one of the things she's trying to do is change the attitude towards animals. And most of the animals, the dogs are street dogs. And so she's teaching the people um, through books and um, other means, how to care for animals. She just recently funded a horse clinic in Nicaragua. Many of the people have to have horses for their work. The, the horses actually carry um, supplies for them. And so she funded a clinic through a Dr. Tapia where People on a Saturday brought their horses. They received their horses received um, veterinarian um, uh, help, meaning they got vaccines. They uh, they received food and um, spay and neuter. Wow! How did she? How did she become involved in something like that? Well, I know you guys love animals and and <laughs> you're big on that, but how? How does one even, how did she even think about that? Actually, it was my oldest daughter who has a master's in social work. She was the first to adopt a little dog from Animal Care and Control in New York, a Chihuahua. We all started to fall in love with animals. Then the second daughter adopted a Shiba Inu. And then the girls got me involved with Southampton Animal Shelter they had met some of the people involved and said, mom, you've got to get involved with this. 
At the time, I was chairing the Southampton Hospitals thousand person gala. I said, I can't do it this year, but maybe next year. And we all fell in love with animals. And on a trip to Costa Rica, my daughter and I went out and she was very interested in meeting different people involved in the animal shelter. So she planned all these meetings ahead of time. And then we decided to take a trip to Nicaragua. And I had been involved with a charity called Surgeons of Hope that was involved in Nicaragua. They were doing, uh, sending heart surgeons to Nicaragua to operate on young children who had congenital heart defects. So when we were in Nicaragua, we met with different groups and we realized that Nicaragua and all the Latin American countries were in great need of help. And so her charity works in Nicaragua, Dominican Republic and Colombia. We actually don't do the work but we send money to groups that do the work. And we are involved in, we have to vet their groups and make sure that they're using the money wisely before we send money. And we do that. That's and great. Good for them. You must be so proud. I want to add one other thing. Sure. And to your listeners that I believe that philanthropy has to be taught. And how do we teach philanthropy to our children? Well, the first thing you can do is teach your children to be kind to others and then to share. And the next thing is when your children get a little older, you can maybe pick a charity that you can get involved with together, find out what your child is interested in. I also believe that the schools are and need to be involved in teaching uh, the art of giving. And many of the private schools have required um, community service hours for their high school students. And I've noticed in a lot of the public schools, they try to bring in people involved in philanthropy. And for, in order for one generation to teach the next generation, we have to serve as good role models. And I think it's very important that philanthropy be taught by parents and teachers. I agree. I so, so agree. And it starts right there at the home with, as a child's growing up, sharing. And that's the social socialization that a lot of these children are missing um, right now due to the pandemic and the choppy uh, school years that they've had last year and then this year. So hopefully in the fall of 2021, schools will be back to where they should be and little children can go back to school and basically learn how to socialize because that's what to me is the biggest thing that these kids are missing. It's been very hard for children this pandemic to be home all the time. They're missing out on the friendships, like you mentioned, Sylvia, but as you said, 2021, September, hopefully children will, will be back in school. One of the things that I did want to talk to you about is um, uh, you've talked about five things to know before you donate your business's time or money to charity, which I think is very important. Um, can we go over those five things that, uh, that you talk about? Uh, I know the first one is develop a clear and focused charitable mission. What exactly do you 
mean by that? Well, when I wrote this article, it was for a, a business who was thinking of getting involved in philanthropy. And so the first thing is, if you have a business, small or large, and you want to give to charity, have a focus. And that means, do you want to give to help the environment? Do you want to give to help children in need? Do you want to help with the animals? But generally, it's good to have a focus. Now, not all businesses necessarily want to have a focus. They might want to have several focuses, and that's okay. But it's it's good to start with a clear idea of what you want to do and where you want to make impact, which brings me to the next point, and that is make impact. If you can create change somewhere, well, that's a good thing to do. Um, third thing is you might want to work with your employees and find out, get involved in what interests them, get involved in the causes that collectively interest your employees. If you have many women working for your organization, they may want to get involved in a charity that helps underserved women. And then another thing you might want to do is if um, you're based in a community, say Connecticut, where you are, well, maybe you want to help local charities in Connecticut. Of course, when you give money, you want to make sure that you're giving to reputable charities. And there are many ways to analyze a charity. There are three different websites that most people go to, GuideStar, Charity Navigator, and the Better Business Bureau. They analyze charities. You can also talk to board members, look up all you can on the internet about a charity, and then make sure they have low overhead. Low head overhead means they're not spending all their money on parties or spending all their money on fundraising, but that their money is going to the programs that they're supposed to be um, funding. And as a rule, overhead should never be more than about 20% of what's brought into a charity. So well, those are the basic ideas. Well, that one of them is, is very important, which a lot of people uh, don't realize. And that is to really um, do your due diligence about the charity that you're looking to get involved with. Um, how do they, you know, what percentage do they actually give to, uh, to help whatever they're advocating for? Um, how quickly does it get there? What have they done before and how do they work? And a lot of times people don't, um, you know, they don't actually, uh, do that. And that is, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, no, it's not. But I want to say that the majority of charities are well run. You can always request a 990 form and that's the same as. Um, so even with the pandemic, you have been one busy, busy lady. Um, nothing has slowed you down. What is, uh, well, I was going to say, what's next on your list? But you're in the midst of, of your TV show, which seems to be expanding. Yes. Well, in a perfect world, I would have a national or international TV show. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm working towards that end. But you never know. I'm, I'm hopeful. I think we all have to be hopeful and, have, and dream big. And that's something I say to 
all of the listeners, dream big, think big, but think realistically and believe in yourself. What else would I like to do? Well, I'm looking forward to uh, the charity events starting up because when people go to events in person, usually the charities can raise a lot of money and, and do even more. I'm looking forward to this pandemic um, ending or, or being greatly reduced. And we're getting there slowly but surely. Well, Jean, where can people find out more about you? Yes, well, I have two websites, jeanshaproff.com that I'm in the process of updating. And then I have jeanshaproffofficial.com. And then you can follow me on social media. I have about 800,000 Instagram followers, and that is at Jean Shafiroff. My name is J-E-A-N-S-H-A-F-I-R-O-F-F. And then my Facebook is at Jean Shafiroff, and Twitter is at Jean Shafiroff. Jean, thank you so much, and and uh, thank you for, for all of the work that you've done. Uh, it's helped so many. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you because you have given not only me, but countless numbers of people a platform to speak about the good they're doing and to, to create an, a place where people can come and learn something and listen. And, and I'm learning from you that you do great work and you are a wonderful woman. So I really want to thank you. Well, thank you, G. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive. They have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at upperdeckfitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.